Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Cheetash. My name is Chris, and today we have a very special guest for you on the YouTube channel. We have an author, father, attorney, lawyer, um, author of the book that we were just reading, To Save the Nation, a book that has been inspired by actual events pertaining to events related to Argentina, which we will get into today. Please, everybody, give a warm welcome for Mr. Robert Cass. Robert, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate you uh, being on. And uh, before we we started the recording, uh, I was letting you know that uh, I really did enjoy your book. Um, and it's kind of funny because this isn't a, a typical book I read. Most of the books I read are like uh, uh, nonfiction, uh, history, science-related, uh, business-type books, um, self-help. And I don't usually venture down the fiction path besides for the channel we did uh 1984 and i did a summary of that uh but i really enjoyed your book and you had told me something before i had started it that you could finish it in a weekend and even though it did take me a little bit because i got i got sidetracked with work and stuff very quick read i will say it i was when i was in it I couldn't put it down and I just kudos to that. You, it was very suspenseful. I, I wanted to keep reading it, but I, I knew I had to put it down and sometimes get to bed early. But, um, was that your goal for this book to kind of make it like a page turner, make it very suspenseful and keep the reader like attached to the page? Absolutely. I mean, this is supposed to be a page turner. In every chapter, we had that challenge of how do we end this chapter in a way that the person can't put it down and wants to continue. In fact, the person I mentioned who read it in the weekend is one of my wife's students. She teaches French on a one-to-one. The woman said she started it Friday evening, and by Sunday night, she was almost done, but she didn't want it to end. So she <laughs> left the balance for, for Monday so she could finish it and get some satisfaction. But she just, you know, she, she was enjoying reading it so much and seeing the twists and the turns that she didn't uh, want it to end. So that's the goal, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of the writing style, it's not fine literature. It's uh, easy reading, page reading, if you will, and uh, uh, a thriller, you know, suspenseful, lots of twists and turns. And the, the crazy thing about it is it's mostly inspired by actual events. This is not just something I invented. These are things they may not have happened exactly to the, certainly not the people with the names mentioned or the order mentioned, but they happened for the most part. And... Just curious, this isn't the only book you've written, right? No, I've written three uh, nonfiction books. Um, this one, so the nonfiction books took maybe a year to write, and one of them was actually a remake of an earlier one that went out of print. And uh, I'm an attorney, as you mentioned, and I do estate planning and estate settlement probate and things like that. And so those books, uh, two of them are how to settle an estate uh, the first one was called What Do We Do Now? Because that's usually what people say when they come to see an attorney after someone passes away. What do we do now? And when that went out of print, we waited a while for the law to settle, which it's almost never settled, but to mm -hmm. settle enough to do a new edition. And we call that one The Executor's Companion. Because as people are searching for a book, they don't search for What Do We Do Now? They search for executor, personal representative, estate, probate, thing. Like mm -hmm. And then along the way, we uh, determined that there was a... Uh, 
a need for something for pet owners. Pet owners are in many cases really dedicated to their pets almost as a member of the family, but don't do anything about it in their estate planning. So uh, we analyzed the law. And we figured that we need to give people some guidance so that they can know what they want to do before they go see an attorney because it can get very expensive if you haven't thought it out. So that one mm -hmm. uh, is the, the third of the nonfiction books. And that is uh, Who Will Care When You're Not There? The State Planning for Pet Owners. And then this book, uh, along really while we were doing the others, this book was kind of cogitating in the background because the facts had already occurred for part of it. We can talk about you know how I get into the story, but that one just was something that had to be written. So, you know, that's how I got into the fiction uh, realm. Wow. And we're we're going to get into your book uh, again to save the nation. Uh, before we do that, and I know you just gave a little bit about uh, your background as an attorney, but can you give us a little more just on, you know, who is Robert Cass? Where are you originally from? What got you into this career path of law, etc.? Sure. Uh, so I call myself a Detroiter. I was born in, in Detroit. I grew up uh, until high school in Northwest Detroit, then moved to Oak Park, graduated high school uh, from Oak Park, and went to Wayne University undergrad and Michigan Law School. And then, and why? That's an interesting question. I'm really not sure why I decided on the law. I know in eighth grade, I had an assignment, which is to write about your future career. My dad was a doctor, and I figured that he worked too hard. I mean, he was always, you know, either in the office or coming home late. Wednesday was doctor's day off, supposedly. He came home at six. That was early. Uh, so I, I kind of picked the law randomly and wrote letters to several people asking them why they decided on the law. And there were some real strange reasons. So they grew up in a time when they had to work during the day and the only thing that was offered was law at night. So they did that. But whatever, I decided on the law and I uh, didn't really know what I was going to do with it. I thought that um, normal lawyers did rear-end collisions and divorces and I wasn't interested in that. <laughs> And I had a kind of an international bent from studying languages and traveling as a teen. So I thought, why don't I do international law? And um, my law school professor said, you, if you want to practice in Europe, you can't get there from here. You can't go straight from law school to a job in a law firm in Europe. You have to have some experience. But I said, no, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to do it as the first stop along the way. I'll, I'll give myself a reason to be in Europe. And then when I'm in Europe, I can go meet people and see if I can get a job. So I got a fellowship. I got a Fulbright and studied uh, East-West Trade in Geneva for a year. And during that year, I don't know how much I learned about East-West Trade, but I did learn how to advertise in the newspapers and write, wrote letters to every American law firm and every American business mm -hmm. and got several offers. Ended up with a law firm in Brussels. So my first job was in Brussels, Belgium, where I'd never been, doing international law, which meant uh, for me transactions usually with involving an American company in a foreign country, uh, sometimes Belgium, sometimes somewhere else, uh, and tax planning for those kind of transactions. And uh, mm -hmm. after a couple of years, I felt that I wanted to get back to the States. And every time I interviewed somebody in the United States, they wanted me to be an international lawyer, which is what I was. But when you do that from the States, you, you have to travel. You do transactions. You know, they send a team around the world, whether it's McDonald's or anybody to, mm -hmm. to negotiate deals. And you end up spending half or 75% of your time away from home traveling, which can sound very romantic. But you know, when you're when you have a family, that's not a really healthy lifestyle. 
So right. after a couple of Christmas vacations, looking into that and interviewing lots of major American companies, I said, why don't I make a career change and get myself uh, some background that's more easily marketable and not so narrow. And uh, one of our clients had been to NYU Law School for a master's in tax. And he said, if you get a master's in tax, you can work anywhere in the country because it's federal law. And you'll be able to work on transactions and and you you won't have to do just international work. So that's what I did for one year at NYU, mm-hmm. and then looked around the country to decide where to go and decided to come back home for family. And uh, I've been since 1979 in the same law firm where I'm a partner, and gravitated into estate planning and estate administration. I do other things as well, but that's probably 95% of what I do, and that's really for families. Not only super wealthy, although we deal with the super wealthy and the ultra high, ultra ultra high net worth folks even, but also regular folks as well. We have a staff that can handle any kind of estate planning or probate situation. And that's what I do today. I can't imagine since uh, being at the same company, you like today for people my age, I, I feel like most people don't stick around a company for like a year sometimes, and you have been with your law firm since 1979. That's a, that's a long time. That's, that's somewhat unusual. We, but we do have a a core of our partners have been with the firm since they started practice. And then there are others who come and go. I mean, people, you know, try something, maybe we've got in the litigation area and they don't feel the cutout for litigation or one young fellow was in the state thing. He was going to be my successor. And then he just felt he wanted to do litigation is more exciting. So we have issues, you know, that that uh, pull people one or another way. But um, yeah, it's been interesting. And, and actually, through that time, I've developed relationships with the clients. That those folks are now the grandparents. We've ha- handled their kids' stuff, and now their grandchildren's stuff. And even around the country, as people move, we've handled estates from coast to coast. Um, one, we've even been picked. Uh, to handle, actually to advise attorneys. So now we mentioned you have an attorney who's handling an estate and the attorney is asking for another attorney to advise on certain things. So we're involved in some major estates of some pretty prominent people uh, that we got in that way that these attorneys who sometimes are not from here need some advice. So we're problem solvers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what we do essentially. (laughs) Nice. Now, uh, going back to what you said with your time in Brussels and the work you did there, that's how you initially came came across, or that's initially how the idea for your book to save the nation uh, was originally birthed. Is that correct? And well, there are a couple of aspects to that. That's one. We had a client who was involved in a situation, which is uh, the book is modeled along the lines of that situation. But another aspect at the same time is when you're uh, a young professional in Brussels, you meet other people who are, you know, on assignment uh, to a company in Brussels, or they've been hired to work for someone, and you, the foreigners, if you will, get to know each other. And I knew uh, a woman from Argentina. And when I kind of inquired as to why she was in Brussels, she was not one of these regular folks who got a job in Brussels. She was basically hiding out in Brussels. And this was a time when we didn't know what was going on that much in other countries. And certainly I, I can say, uh, I didn't read a daily paper when I was in Brussels. I don't know what I'd listen to for news. I think we had a TV, but it wasn't on very much. 
And so when I met somebody who said that uh, she left Argentina because her friends were being picked up and jailed for protesting, and every day they would call each other to see if they're still there, that stuck with me. And then when I had this Argentine client who was involved in a situation, I put it all together and uh, started getting interested in what was really going on there. Now, so I'm not a historian. The book isn't mm -hmm. history. I have like cases and cases of research over a 20 year period that did not find its way into the book because I had to make something readable, mm -hmm. an interesting story. And um, so most questions would come up if somebody asked me a question today about the, you know, the politics of the era, who did this, who did that, I would look it up because I didn't need all that information for the story. I needed a few basic story elements, which is what I pulled out of history. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I do like books like this book, uh, books like your book, um, again, to save the nation in that it weaves actual events that actually happened, uh, in, inside of this fictional world. Uh, but again, the, the things that you talk about in the book actually did happen and were going on in Argentina in this time period, uh, 1970s, uh, cold, we're talking like Cold War era. Uh, can you explain for the audience just what exactly was going on at this time in Argentina and what your, from the, the patrons that you were describing earlier, the conversation that you had and uh, your clients, sure. uh, what yeah. they went through? Okay, well, and we'll get to the client part just at the end of it. So um, there was a military government. The regime was uh, had taken over in a coup, and there were protests against that. And now overlay this. This is also an era where people were concerned about communism taking over the world, the Che Guevara, people speaking up for the lower classes. So um, the military was frustrated by the guerrillas, and these are the leftist guerrillas, and they're different groups that were causing havoc. Frankly, they were you know, throwing bombs, grenades, they were killing people, they were targeting assassinations of executives and so on. The military was very frustrated. And at a certain point, they decided to pull out all the stops and literally eradicate the opposition. And um, they picked up people who were suspected of being terrorists, which probably meant if you had a beard, if you wore blue jeans, if you were a labor activist, if you were a professor, if you were a judge, if you were an attorney, uh, I think 50% of the people who were picked up were labor activists trying to get uh, unions into the companies. Um, the, the, and the total uh, offered by the opposition, the, let's say the, the left, as to how many of their people disappeared, in quotes, uh, was about 30,000. The military say that's a gross exaggeration, it's just propaganda. And I, you know, we'll talk about my actual conversation with a member of the military, but they said, you know, it was grossly overstated. It was more like 8,000, 8,500. I still think that's a lot of people to disappear. And Absolutely. when you read, read books about this or um, watch uh, documentaries, you'll see really, you know, what it was like. If they picked up somebody, they would torture them until the, the person gave them names of other people or they got their address book and then they'd go pick up the other people. They would take them out of their schoolrooms. They would take them out of their homes in the middle of the night. Uh, sometimes they would leave a, uh, a truck in, you know, in a residential neighborhood with bodies hanging on meat hooks to intimidate the population. Um, so it was a very, very treacherous time to be somebody who was anti-government. And um, 
my client, and, and I, I wasn't aware of any of this really, except mm-hmm. to the extent that that friend told me that their friends had to check on each other at the end of the day to see if they were still there. I wasn't reading anything about it. I don't even know how much of it was in the U.S. press, and I didn't know anything about U.S. involvement in it until I actually did the research for the book. And there I found, uh, at a certain point in time, a treasure trove of information was made public under Freedom of Information Act, and we see things such as a, um, a confidential top-secret memo by Henry Kissinger, or of a meeting with Henry Kissinger, then Secretary of State, where the military attache, whoever it was from the Argentine government, is explaining their frustration with the rebels and asks for U.S. support as they try to annihilate them. And Kissinger says, get it done, just get it done before Congress gets back in session. Wow. So that's the kind of thing that I heard that made me feel very badly about our role, although I didn't have a full picture of you know really what was going on, how much the CIA was helping or training, which all these things came out later. And anybody who's interested in, in becoming a scholar in this doesn't have to go too far to find books and, and YouTube um, stuff posted. There's other doc- there are commercial documentaries and other documentaries that show the same kind of thing. Um, so the client, now in, in kind of a parallel track, the mm-hmm. client was an Argentine banker. And he came to us in Brussels because he wanted to buy a Belgian bank. And he had a, a Belgian bank, a Luxembourg bank, a bank in Israel. They had lots of banks in Argentina. And he was in the process of buying a bank in the United States. And his private uh, charter jet going from New York to Acapulco crashed one day. And we were given notice of that. And allegedly, he died in the crash. And his body was identified, although the remains were charred, and he was then cremated. Within a couple of weeks, all the banks that I mentioned in this network of banks around the world failed. Uh, money was missing. Millions of dollars in phony transactions were discovered. And so there was speculation maybe that he wasn't in the plane, that he did it, you know, he set it up so that it looked like he's in the plane. And uh, the guy that, the, the client, well, the, this is the client, the banker, but the fellow that we dealt with, and I never actually met the client, the fellow that we dealt with, was his right-hand man, a, an attorney. And I did deal with him quite a bit, traveled with him on business, knew him well, got a wedding gift from him. And we learned that he was picked up and interrogated by the military about the money, where's the money and what's, what went on. And he died under torture. And that's the last I heard of it. And then I left Belgium to come back to the States. And I didn't know, was it true? Did the guy die in the crash? Why did the right-hand man, Jorge Rubenstein, die? Did he die? What were the circumstances? There's a lot of question marks. So for a while, I researched it, trying to get some closure here, and then realized that like there was dead ends everywhere that nobody knew. There was some talk that he was that the banker was seen, I think in Spain, but you know even like Elvis is seen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know, and I laid it, put it down for a while, and after a while decided to you know, do some further research and then decided I was never going to really come to a conclusion on a factual basis so that I should just fictionalize it with the idea that um, the guy who died should not be forgotten, Jorge Rubenstein, so the book is dedicated to him, mm-hmm. and that people uh, should know about these kind of things, that this uh, notion that if you uh, don't like criticism, can't stand a protest, that you should just disappear people, without them having broken any laws or having any trials, 
um, that people should know that this goes on and hopefully if they're aware of it, uh, history will not repeat itself. Before I even finish the book, history is repeating itself. So that's kind of wishful thinking that history will repeat itself. It does. And it's even you know, on a greater scale in a way, which I can talk about later. But uh, the idea was to give people an entertaining read, which would lead them to think about some important issues and maybe have discussions about how far should a country go when it thinks it's being threatened, um, quote, to save the nation. Because you think there's a greater good here, we have to save the country, therefore we're going to eradicate everybody that we disagree with. That's how I think it should be, but I want people to think about it. The book could be used in classroom discussion in college or law school, or it could just be an interesting topic for people to talk about because when you go further into today's events, there's the same thing really happening around the world in a different way, which we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I There's one example that comes to my mind uh, right away, which is, and maybe we even on our initial, when we like first officially met uh, on a video call, I think we had talked about this case in Saudi Arabia with uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And what happened, what happened with him. And that's when, that's how I'm kind of connecting these dots that, oh, even though these events took place, I mean, this is kind of a long time ago in Argentina, but like what you were saying, these types of events go on, are still going on today. And um, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy to think that in some ways I, f- I feel like we should have came a long way from this time period, but in other ways, it's kind of, nothing has changed. I don't, is that kind of accurate to say like nothing's really it's kind of things are still the same, maybe a little bit better. Mm, I can't say if they're, they're not better. Things have not changed enough. Mm-hmm. And um, interesting, when uh, when you write a book, before the book is published, you want to get some cover comments so that there'll be nice things said about the book on the back cover when people usually make a judgment to buy it based on the back cover. So I thought it would be good to have different kinds of people, maybe judges, diplomats. Well, what about a journalist who writes about disappearances? So I Googled journalists and disappearance. Rather than finding journalists who write about disappearances, I found that journalists are disappearing because they're writing about things that the governments in various countries don't want them to write about. And I found an organization that focuses on the problems and disappearances and the murders of journalists worldwide. And it's called Reporters Without Borders. And it's worth looking at because they they quantify every country that something is going on, that people have been arrested because they wrote a story. And the thing that, that uh, really, I think if you looked at um, instances of uh, reporters disappearing, one thing that caused them to disappear is they were writing about the pandemic. And some countries denied the existence of the pandemic. The leadership didn't want people to feel that the government was out of control. I think that's my supposition that the government, I mean, why should the government care if people get information about the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a, uh, an autocratic government, you want people to believe that you, the leader, are in control. And if you can't control this pandemic, then you're not in control. So those kinds of governments uh, prohibited people from writing about this stuff. And if they did, they, they had to flee or they would be 
basically picked up and put out of service. So uh, this is really, you know, bringing the whole problem. It's not about communism anymore. It's about uh, these kinds of issues that are just uh, uh, antithetical to whatever the government's policy is. And it's scary, it's very scary and it continues. And these folks need, you know, support if, if only to buy bulletproof vests or uh, to pay for legal fees because sometimes they're arrested and there actually are trials and they need to have lawyers. Wow. And, and I never intended the book to, to take us there. Mm-hmm. You know, basically you follow the facts and this is where we are now. Wow. Speaking of your book, um, and, and that's a very interesting, uh, the, the backstory that we were just describing uh, with how you came to formulate this plot of your book again called To Save the Nation. Um, first, can you give just like a brief uh, synopsis of your book? Uh, don't have to go into too much detail, but just kind of the storyline and what's happening. Yeah. And let me suggest also, if anyone is interested to get this in a, in a way that give you the whole story in a dramatic fashion, <laughs> I decided to do a trailer, a video trailer. So if you go to my website, www.robertekass, and, and no, no periods there, just robertekass.com, there's a book cover and you click on that and you have the, uh, the video trailer with music and narration. But basically, um, and it's hard to, you know, several stories within the story, but basically the story is a woman in Uruguay learns after her mother passed away that she really wasn't her mother. That her mother was one of these people who disappeared in Argentina. And in fact, another thing to note about the disappearances, uh, among the people who were disappeared were 500 pregnant women. And their babies were taken from them under C-section. Mothers were killed. And then the babies were sold off or adopted by the military. So this person in the book, is one of the people who was a child of a disappeared person, but she never knew it. Her real mother was one of the disappeared. And when her mother died, she left her a note. She couldn't tell her while she was alive, but she left her a note uh, telling her that uh, she wasn't really her mother. And uh, that the man that she knew as her father really wasn't her father either. He had died some years before. Mm -hmm. And he was actually ex-Argentine military responsible for the death of her real mother. So here she is. Both parents dead, just learning that her whole life was a lie and that she never knew it. And she has nobody to complain to or ask about it. And the other thing that the mother tells her was that her real father was the banker. So now she's got an identity crisis. Should she continue to love her so-called parents because they saved her from death? Or should she hate them because they were responsible for her real mother's death? And she ultimately finds an attorney to get into this for her to resolve the issue either of that the father actually died in the crash banker or to find him and that's kind of the legal thriller as she goes through this discovery thing and then the lawyer what the lawyer has to do and every step of the way i ask myself what would i do if if something like this walked in the door like a case like this who would i contact how would i work it out what Mm -hmm. would i do and uh, my whole profession, professional life has been dealing with unusual situations. We have had, I can't tell you, I mean, I've represented owners of pro- professional sports teams, uh, Russian Red Army hockey team owner. Wow. Um, you know, so you just, it, it's nothing new to us to find something unusual happening. We don't do routine things. We do some routine things, but usually things turn out to be not routine. And so this, this, uh, 
the story unfolded as I thought it would in real life. What would you do? And, and you know, you don't necessarily make a phone call and get an answer to a question. You have to investigate, create a team to investigate, examine alternatives. Some, some are uh, worthless and you move on to the next one. You've even got issues of what, what does your firm think about getting into a case like this? Mm-hmm. You know, so you got to resolve it all. I have one question on the book and the the main character or one of the main characters, uh, this Mr. David Winkler, who's the attorney, the one that uh, meets with the the young woman, uh, Maria. Is, is this character based on you or anybody that you've come across in your profession? Um, or is anybody from David's law firm or even the law firm is, itself is did you kind of base this off of your personal law firm yes and actually what what people say is that when you write your first novel a lot of it is autobiographical because you're looking for information mm-hmm. that you have the most information about yourself and so basically the the lead character david winkler is is kind of me and the people <laughs> in the firm there's no single person who's represented but there are characteristics of various people so people in the firm when they read it they go aha that's so and so or kind of um, yeah because it's just easier to come up with something credible when you've got some a real person, you know, a real person, you know, how they would react, you know, the things they've said to you over the year, the, the advice that people have given and how they approach problems. So when you imagine yourself sitting at a long table with a bunch of partners, some of whom are many years older, and you're saying you're, you want to do this thing, they're going to have the naysayers who say, what the hell you think you're doing? You're wasting time on nothing. They're not going to be able to pay. You're never going to find it. Or you get somebody else who might be encouraging saying, you know, uh, just don't turn this down just because some people are being negative about it. Do what you can do and, you know, cut your losses at a certain point when it seems like you won't be able to do anything, but maybe you can find something. So you're looking at how different people react and that's reality. You know, that's, that's how mm-hmm. it would happen. And, and uh, it, it makes it, I think, more real because I didn't, I don't have a book of uh, how you create characters and what are the characteristics of typical characters. This, these people are real. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I've was it tough? How tough was it balancing your career in law and also at the same time writing this book? Like, did you say that this book took a lot longer than your other nonfiction books that you wrote? Yeah, and I really, you know, I don't know exactly when I started, but uh, a lot of it was research and. Uh, at a certain point, I started going on vacation at the end of the year for a couple of weeks, and I would use half a day each day. But then because it had been almost a year since I last looked at it, I had to get myself back into it again. So it took probably off and on 20 years from start to finish. I self-published also. So then there's learning about how you do that, how you get books printed, and then what mm-hmm. the layout is, and how you find a cover designer, and you know all that kind of stuff. And, and so if you do a, a nonfiction book, you have you know, subject matter to, to cover. You uh, lay out the chapters that you want to cover. Each one is essentially a, a, a mini memo, you know, uh, on a particular topic, and you can check it off, and you, you know where you're going because you know people will not be fully advised on the topic unless they've learned A to Z. So you go A to Z, and you've got 25 or six whatever chapters. This thing, um, you just don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can kind of think, you know, but you really, some things you haven't finished. In fact, one of the major problems I had was in the middle of it, how how would a person 
react when they find out that their parents weren't their real parents. Yeah. So I kind of skipped that for the longest time. I just said, well, I'll write the part that goes before that and after that, and then I'll have to figure this out. And ultimately, I decided I had to go to Argentina and meet children of the disappeared people to get a real understanding of whether they, you know, would turn against their parents when they learned about the big lie, or whether they would say, you know what, they gave me life, they allowed me to continue to live, and so I should be grateful. And that was, you know, one thing that, that allowed us to allow me to finish the book because I could at least decide uh, based on known reactions what how my character was going to react. And when you when you met with these people, was this also the same time? I know earlier you mentioned meeting with uh, somebody from the Argentine military. Was this also when you met with that individual as well? Right. So it was all in connection with the same visit. So what happened was we decided we were going to go to Argentina and we were going to spend two weeks there. The first few days would be doing interviews. Then we would... Uh, interviews with the dis children of the disappeared people we tr try to get to a day and maybe six interviews total and i hired somebody local who was going to be an interpreter who would try to set up these interviews and there's a, uh, several organizations uh one of them is the mothers of the plaza de mayo uh, which are a group of uh, mothers of, of disappeared people who are still searching for their disappeared kids mm -hmm. and see if through that organization we could set up some interviews but I wanted, to, I spoke some Spanish from decades before, but I didn't know what Argentine Spanish sounds like. And it is different and a lot of the words are different. So I wanted to have some brush up lessons looking for somebody in the Detroit area who could tutor me a couple of coffee shop sessions on a weekend. And I found somebody not too far from me. She agreed to do it. And um, we had two, two opportunities so for the first one, I knew she was going to say, why are you going to Argentina? And I didn't want to tell her anything about the banker story, because if anybody thought that I knew where the hundreds of millions of dollars were, I'd be in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So I just talked about the disappeared people and how I felt as an American, somewhat culpable for what our government did in terms of support, assuming that she, a 30-year-old or so Argentine, would say, yep, that was a really bad thing. Instead, she said, stop, I have to tell you something said what and she said uh, uh my family was the military i said holy cow i'm wow. in trouble now because she knows my name she knows where i'm going she knows my agenda and i said well what do you mean your family is the military and she said my um stepfather was a colonel during this time he was involved and uh, my grandfather was a general here. so i wow. but she says you need to understand something i'm not going to turn you in there are two sides to every story, and we can agree that the military did bad things, but we also need to understand that the guerrillas did bad things. When they threw bombs under buses, they were sometimes civilians who were hurt, killed. When they killed the military, they sometimes killed their children. So uh, she said, well, if you'd like to meet my stepfather, maybe I can arrange it. And I said, you know what, let me think about it before the next lesson, and uh, I'll let you know. So when, as soon as I got home, I said, I need to meet the colonel. I just, for the sake of the story, I need to meet this guy and hear right from him. So I let her know that for the second lesson, I asked if she had been able to contact him. And she said she hadn't. He was traveling and she left a voicemail, but maybe he would call even today. 
And no sooner did she put her phone down on the table than it rang. Ah, mm -hmm. picked it up. Ah, papi, si, senor Casas está aquí, momento. She said, he's here, Mr. Casas is here. Would you like to just wait a moment? So she wanted to pass the phone to me. And I said, please, my Spanish isn't that good. It's terminology that I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's an international call on a cell phone. Just tell them what I'm about. Ask the film me. So uh, she explained and he said, look, tell Mr. Cass, I'd be happy to meet him. Give him my phone number. We'll set something up when he arrives. But just tell him this. I will tell him what happened. I will not tell him what I did. Fast forward. We were there the day of the meeting in our little boutique hotel, which had like 10 rooms and no conference room. So we were going to use an empty room for the interview. And I woke up like at 4.30 in the morning saying, what the heck am I doing here? I'm in a cold sweat. This is crazy. I brought my wife. She's going to be involved in this thing too. We don't know who this guy is. We don't know what his agenda is. And we're meeting with a guy who's involved, arguably, in the murder of 30,000 people. And uh, we decided to go ahead. But by the way, that my interpreter waking up at the same time in the morning had the same thought for $15 an hour. Why am I putting myself in this situation? But she did it. And basically, he talked very freely. He lectured us on uh, what was going on politically at the time with Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, uh, communism, Marx, Stalin, Lenin, Khrushchev. You know, the world was going to be taking over and we had to save, save the country. And uh, I said, is it possible that you killed somebody who was innocent? Because I had read that they, they did kill innocent people there. American college students who were there for the summer got picked up, university professors. And uh, he said, oh, no, we, we didn't make any mistakes. We, did, we had information. He said, did you have trials? He said, oh, we had information. It's very serious information. I said, is it possible, even conceivable, that some innocent people die? Mm -hmm. And then he says, look, war is war. Innocent people die. Mm -hmm. And I said, 30,000? He says, ah, propaganda. That's propaganda. No, it wasn't true. I said, how many did you kill? 8,000, maybe 500, maybe. And what about the babies? My wife was very concerned. Why did you need the babies? Did you, you couldn't have babies or what? We had read that um, they felt that the babies or children under a certain age could not form evil intent. So there was no reason to kill them. Mm -hmm. he said, the way he put it, he said, look, we were going to kill the mothers because they were rebels. There's no need to kill the babies. But he said at a certain point, it took on a life of its own, which I never understood. I think it means maybe they sought out pregnant women. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So uh, basically, bottom line is he felt they needed to do and were justified in doing whatever it took to fend off the Marxist, leftist, communist invasion to save the nation, which is how I got the title for the book. Wow, that that sounds like a very very intense meeting with this. I have sweaty palms even telling the story. Wow, yeah, that's. I just can't imagine being in the presence of somebody who was who was directly involved in this event. Yeah. Oh, wow. Was it a long? As I, as I recall, I think what happened was after all these events, uh, government changed and a lot of these folks were tried mm -hmm. and then they were pardoned. And then later 
you know, regimes continued to change and other governments decided to prosecute some of these people. So there, there was, for example, a Dutch Argentine uh, former member of the military pilot who had been involved. Another thing that they were doing, other than just uh, torturing and murdering people, they would drug them, tell them that they were going to be released to a remote area of the country where they needed vaccinations. So they would inject them with a, a drug which would put them to sleep, and they stripped them and took them up in C-140 transports over the ocean and dropped them in the ocean in the dead of night, never to be seen again. And one of the guys who was a pilot on those planes was bragging about it for years, and he finally landed in Spain on one of his trips, and the Spanish government arrested the guy. So as I'm writing this book, I'm reading you know, every other week in the New York Times about another story that has to do with Argentina and the remnants of this whole debacle. Uh-huh. It's not over. I mean, some of the guys are dying off. Maybe they're in prison and they're dying in their 80s or 90s. But it was a moving target, the whole thing. Wow. Wow. Going back to, going back to your book, and I, I don't want to give away too much here, but I noticed something in the latter half of the book. There is this prison and justice system that gets involved in the storyline. Again, I, I don't want to reveal too much uh, for the audience um, and have any spoilers for them, but was there an intention with bringing that into the storyline? Like if you, you know, writing, writing this book and having the plot be what it is to bring attention to this uh, dirty war in Argentina and then in the latter half of the book, the prison and justice justice system gets involved. Were you also trying to shed light on the problems with our prison and justice system? Yeah. And I think I became more and more aware of it as time went on because we read stuff in the press. We see that uh, there's this thing called the Innocence Project, which takes on cases oh, of yeah. people who arguably have been wrongly convicted. We see that in Wayne County, uh, the prosecutor finally decided after a certain number of years to start looking into some of these cases. And um, people need to know it's certainly not a perfect system and stuff can happen. And, and the things that I write about are things that have happened. You, mm-hmm. you read about a case where uh, evidence uh, is uh, discovered a few days before somebody is to be executed, which evidence would vindicate the person but the court says he's had enough time. This is too late. You know, he's, he should have raised it earlier. I know a fellow who was, um, I think he was like a federal uh, defender's office in Alaska in early years of his law career. And he had so many cases that he couldn't properly try the cases. And after losing some of these cases, he appealed the loss and the grounds for the appeal was incompetent counsel himself. He felt he had no choice but to admit the fact that he couldn't properly handle the case because of the workload that he had and that the person shouldn't have been convicted if he had had proper representation. So it's a tough, tough system out there. People shouldn't assume mm-hmm. that it's all okay, that uh, there's no uh, mistakes made, sometimes innocent, sometimes not. But a lot of the cases that come up now are because people have confessed to things or witnesses have given false testimony 
And, you know, they'll say the person was convicted because of like seven witnesses. Now six of the seven recant and say that they didn't really see what they saw Mm -hmm. or or see what they said they saw and that they were forced to by by police. So I think this is something which we're seeing even now that, you know, it's back on the table is we've got to make this system work better. And uh, it's a separate, it's kind of a subplot, I guess, of the whole story. It's funny you mentioned uh, the Innocence Project because I came across them through their interviews on the Joe Rogan experience and the one the one guy uh, his name escapes me right now but he's he's had multiple appearances on the Joe, Joe Rogan experience and the stories that he tells are just absolutely like I just kind of am just want to shout out like what like how does this happen like this how does something like this happen where, I mean, he has a bunch, bunch of clients, you know, that were wrongly convicted and just, I'm just sitting there thinking, how does something like this happen? Uh, and then, of course, I've heard, um, you hear that the other work that people are doing in this area, whether it's um, Kim Kardashian uh, has worked to uh, exonerate some people um Kanye West also had tried to famously um free the this uh Chicago um native uh, Larry Hoover from prison um even Curtis Jackson aka 50 Cent uh, I believe he produced a movie about um a man trying to um prove his innocence who was imprisoned wrongfully so mm-hmm. I Definitely, there. It seems like there's more attention being brought to this to this area and to the prison system. Like you said, it's it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system whatsoever. And I applaud the work that 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 some of these people do, just trying to bring attention to it and uh, right some wrongs. Well, I had a, a, a very specific problem to deal with, with uh, something I know nothing about, which is what would you do as an attorney if you found out that somebody clearly wasn't guilty and it was just days before they were about to be executed? And so that's mm-hmm. not my area of law, but mm-hmm. it's something that had to be dealt with in the book. So uh, I had a relative who worked on death penalty cases, and that's all she did. She was a uh, social worker, and there are two parts of a death penalty case. One is, did the person do it? So that's the conviction part. Okay, let's say that they did the crime. But the other thing is, do they deserve the death penalty or should they get life in prison instead? And that brings in the psychologists and social workers to talk about their background, their family, their, you know, it's what they were subjected to as children and drug addiction and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So she referred me to a couple of attorneys who do um, those kinds of cases. And the one guy immediately said, first of all, it couldn't happen. You know, they, they just find out two or three days or a week before. And I said, look, I'm writing the book. This is the facts. It happens. What would you do? And so what's in the book is the basically uh, conclusions that stem from advice that I got from people who actually do this kind of work as to how they would handle it, which was actually different than I thought, but uh, I think more realistic, So, which mm-hmm. then takes on a character of its own of how you deal with with those alternatives but yeah it's a separate thing and i think it's an interesting aspect too uh but it's it's kind of the same the same kind of moral ethical lesson that we're trying to teach 
you know, yeah. whether it's dealing with dissidents or dealing with people in the criminal justice system, people have to, you know, be represented and, and, uh, and you got to be very careful about how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Robert, I just have, I have just a, a couple, couple more questions for you. Um, the one thing as I was finishing the book that just, I couldn't help but think that this would be an awesome, awesome idea for a movie or a miniseries. I, and I see kind of other miniseries, whether it's Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, what have you, other kind of uh, series popping up that are kind of in the, a similar vein to the to um, the events of this book. Have you have you have any thoughts about that and taking well, no, this I, one step? That further? I think should be the ultimate goal. Yeah. The problem is that this is not my area, and I haven't decided to put any money into it to get an agent to uh, pitch the, the book to the movie people. I have been given some information about a couple of people mm-hmm. who could be interested, and the the uh, the book has gone out to them, and they're kind of pondering it. Uh, if the pandemic actually, somebody mentioned, would be a good time because they were, you know, the Netflix of the world were looking for content, and it may still be that situation. Uh, it's got to fall into the right hands. Um, and, you know, there are people still who look at the facts of what happened in the dirty war and say, why should we care? 1970s or 80s, Argentina, that's a long time away. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, there's, a some books that were recommended, not books, movies recommended recently on a, on the TV program, the list. And one of them was motorcycle diaries, which probably came out, I don't know, seventies, eighties. Oh yeah. I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these, these, you're right. Everybody actually who reads the book says this ought to be a movie and it was written in a way that's very visual so that it would be, you know, uh, not that hard. One of the things that, that, uh, is an issue really is some of the foreign locations, but uh, they can deal with it. One guy (laughs) was talking about the way they actually even have stock images uh, that they can use in movies, uh, stock footage to get you to certain places so that you have a feeling of actually being there without taking the whole crew. Oh, that's cool. So yes, I'd like it. And if you, if you or any of your uh, folks have any connections, let me know. Be happy to send copies of the books to whomever. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, uh, in, uh, in Troy, uh, they have that uh, Motion Picture Institute um, for aspiring young filmmakers. And I actually did, I was a part of, I, I acted, uh, I guess you could call it talent, but I wasn't really that talented. So I, I acted in a couple of their uh, productions and it, a lot goes into a film that I had not even any clue about and these were just short films. I can't even imagine like a full length feature film or, or a mini series just from, from pre-production, writing the script all the way to, you know, actually filming. And then you got to deal with post-production. It's, it seems like a whole different ball game. Yeah. And I think that, um, it's a money aspect behind the whole thing. And so many of the movies that I see, I can't even figure out how anybody thought to put money into it because it was just, you know, so bad. Uh, this is a good story. Yeah. Um, 
Absolutely. You just have to wait for someone to pick it up. There were some um, documentaries about this, and I think if a person just Googled uh, Dirty War Argentina documentary, they'd find a few. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not... This is more than that. This is really... You know, it stems from the disappearances in Argentina in the 70s, but it's uh, or 80s, but it's not about that. So this is it doesn't fall in the same line as a documentary about that period. It's it's really just a legal thriller centered, if you will, on the uh, the search by the attorney for you know for the the guy or to find the guy or see that he perished in the crash. Um, but I think that's still a good story. I, every time I get a little bit. Uh, I don't know, troubled by the fact that I'm not, not making progress. I pick up a Grisham book and I say, this is no different. <laughs> Absolutely. Just, a, just a, a legal thrower. Here we have a human rights overlay, mm-hmm. but um, it's a legal thrower. And uh, speaking of John Grisham, do you, do you have any plans then for resurrecting this character of David Winkler and writing like a follow-up to this book, maybe different events, you know, completely different plot, kind of in a the vein of how Dan Brown has Robert Langdon, you know, in Angels and Demons and in um, The Lost Symbol, Da Vinci Code, etc. Have you yeah. ever thought about that? No, I'm actually working on it, but it's just, uh, I haven't, I started with a couple of chapters. I know where I'm going with it. I just haven't had the time or energy. Um, and it's got to be done well, not 20 years, okay, because it really has to do a little. And I might, may have to change the storyline because it obviously is not going to be done in time, but it would have to do with the midterm elections of this year and uh, the president, the next presidential election. Okay. And um, um, political, let's say, irregularities, Russian interference, and the like. And um, it's something when I've told people the story, they said, you know, you ought to do it right now before you're done. Just maybe write a half a dozen chapters and release one a week in a podcast. So the people need to have some insight and information into options that are available if they have strong political feelings about what's going on in government, Supreme Court, things like that, Mm -hmm. versus Wade, because people don't know necessarily what's out there. They're frustrated, they're dead-ended, and there may be some things, radical perhaps, that can be done, but at least to give them some ideas that, you know, maybe things can be made better. Now, there's half the country that would disagree with me about these things, so, you know, so be it, but... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's it's the same character. Uh, he he has uh, often his own law firm now, oh, and nice. uh, c- contacted by a former client who happened to own the Russian Red Army hockey team. Uh, I was involved in when the Russian Red Army hockey team sued the Detroit Red Wings over a player, and so I have kind of a personal experience of dealing with the owner, uh, knowing what it was like. And now we'll fictionalize the character because he's. He's not going to be dealing with the same kind of issues. Mm-hmm. That book's but, uh, man. I want to read this book now. <laughs> and I think, just... You know, I'm thinking really what should be done is a shorter book, mm-hmm. and and uh, maybe it would even not be a book. I mean, a book I think has got to be a hundred pages. Unfortunately, 
you know, you can have the major legal milestones, the problems that you have to address and resolve if you can. But between that, there has to be a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. The dialogue thing is, you know, it takes time, takes pages. And uh, I haven't yet found a voice recognition system that works that well. So there's a lot of typing involved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, that's the idea. Yes, I've thought about it. I want to mm -hmm. do it. Um, it may happen. We'll see. It started. And the research... I've got piles of research and I think I probably have enough research to get started with it. Some of these things are legal issues that are very thorny and there's no real answer yet. So we have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we, we're working on it. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Uh, Robert, last question. I, what advice could you give to aspiring authors, uh, aspiring even uh, people who are seeking a career in law, um, anything out there for those people trying to go down these paths? Well, the author part, I really can't tell you because there are a million people out there who will tell you, you know, how to write the story, how to market the story, how to publish it and all that stuff. But on the legal side, uh, as I think back, um, first of all, if you could have one wish, what would that wish be? And that probably would be that you could have more than one wish. <laughs> that way you could, you know, extend the wishing. And so I think that a person who is thinking about the law uh, early on should somehow get a relationship with a lawyer who would become the mentor to that person because you're going to need advice. I, mean, I had a guy, one of the people to whom I wrote my letter, of why did you choose the law? I don't even know if he answered the question, but he wrote the whole outline, filled in all the, all the data that I needed because I gave him the outline for the whole paper and became a mentor. I didn't contact him every week. I probably contacted him every few years to say, should I go to law school in the summer? And his advice was don't travel in the summer instead. And you'll never get, you know, six weeks of free time ever again in your life. So that was valuable advice, but, but, you know, find a mentor and if it doesn't work with the first one, find somebody else who can uh, guide you and help you think about options and, and make decisions along the way. Another thing would be, and something that I never did, if it's possible, get uh, clerkships with law firms so you can see what it's really like inside a law firm. And that could be summer clerkships or maybe even clerkships during the year. It's not about the money. It's about getting some experience and exposure. Another thing along the way, uh, whether it's in the law student realm or as a lawyer, get involved in bar activities we have a continuing education uh, program that's put on by an organization, ICLE, Institute of Continuing Legal Education. It's not required for Michigan attorneys to do continuing ed, but we find it can be very helpful to get you to focus on certain areas. American Bar Association has seminars, webinars, materials, and you can, um, you can actually create uh, opportunities for yourself by becoming involved with legislative grafting through the bar and so on. I've, excuse me, watched young attorneys in the estate planning area uh, gain proficiency and client base and respect from others, their peers, in three to five years because they're involved and they're participating and giving time. And that means, you know, after office hours and weekends yeah. to do things, writing laws. And then also be nimble. And don't just think you're going to do one thing and that's the thing you're going to do your whole life. You may go from private practice to a company. You may end up 
running a business and going back to private practice, if you think about the fact that the law changes, like how many, how many cannabis companies were there in Michigan five years ago? Probably none. And because now cannabis is legal, you've got people who are advising cannabis companies. And if, you, if your whole practice is advising cannabis companies and all of a sudden something happens and cannabis isn't legal anymore, you don't have a practice. I specialized yeah. for a year or so in an area of the law that allowed me to go and speak for the uh, accounting association all over the state. And I got to know a lot of accountants and I produced a lot of material booklets and outlines on this stuff. And then the law changed and that was no longer an issue. So be, just be nimble and, and you decide at a certain point, maybe you should do a shift. Like if you're in practice for five years, not happy with what you're doing, maybe you want to shift your practice focus. You can do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'd say, you know, get more out of the practice by putting more into it. Um, don't be passive. And if you just, you know, monitor yourself and see how you're doing your happiness factor, your revenue factor. And uh, if you have other people you can talk to about it, and attorneys are generally willing to share information, certainly in the estate planning area. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for all of this, but I think it's the same thing. If you found somebody, whether it's a family friend or you meet them professionally, uh, they're, they're going to give you their thoughts at least. Well, that is that is some timeless advice, Robert. And um, I just want to thank you again for coming on and having the conversation with me about uh, your book. Again, uh, the book for those listening, uh, To Save the Nation. Um, Robert, if people wanted to buy the book, what's the best route and what is the best way that people can um, get in contact with you or do you have a website of some sorts? Yes. So the website, first of all, they could go to Amazon, but there's probably other books with a a name that's close. So it's not going to be the first hit. If they go to my website, there'll be a buy now button. And the website is www.robertekass.com. And they can get the book in hard copy version through Amazon. There's also an ebook available through Amazon. And there is an audio book. So um, they can pick their method. I would, uh, if anybody's interested and likes to listen to audiobooks, I really highly recommend it. We had a professional narrator do that. And there are lots of foreign accents in the book, which this guy did very, very well. We have Russian accents, we have Spanish accents, Mexican accents. Oh, we nice. have uh, Brooklyn grieving widow accents. We have deep South prison warden accents. So it's fun and it's a, it's a different way to do it. And he did a great job. So these are all the ways it can be done. If someone wanted to contact me, um, conceivably through the website, but another way direct to my email is rcass, K-A-S-S, at B as in boy, S as in Sam, D as in David, D as in David.com. It's rcass at bscd.com. Awesome. I Again, uh, thank you very much, Robert, for taking the time. And again, folks, uh, book was book was incredible and I highly recommend this book for anybody out there. Um, I'll include some links in the description of this video uh, so you can find Robert's website and purchase the book. And I just want to thank everybody out there for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Cheetash. Take care.